This is the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast with Wayne Scott and Gary Taylor. On this episode, we examine what the Aston Martin brand has been up to over the past 12 months. Discover more about the story of Aston Martin. AMHT.org.uk Hello and welcome to another Aston Martin Heritage Podcast, episode three already. Wayne Scott with you and also... Gary Taylor, hello. We are the people who like to share the stories of the people like you who love Aston Martin listening and all of the stories of the people involved with the Aston Martin brand. So what we thought is, what a brilliant idea to look back on 2021 and look back at what Aston Martin have been doing over those 12 months a kind of record of the entire year of 2021 through the lens of Aston Martin if you will now you might be joining us from episode two excitedly looking forward to our interview with HW own gearboxes don't worry it's in episode four it's still to come but what we thought we'd do is make this a little bit of a special purely so that we can really delve into the stories of 2021 for Aston Martin and overall, Gary, it has been a positive year for the brand, hasn't it? When uh, as looking back over the year, you tend to think, well, what has Aston Martin actually done? And, you know, uh, and how can we fill up a podcast? And so I'm making notes. And my goodness, there's a lot going on in the in the past year. Aston Martin, Aston Martin F1 and Aston Martin Racing for the, for the endurance side of matters. And there was a lot of stuff going on and a lot of it is is good news i was delighted to say well it started very early on in the year in 2021 because if you look back to then the world had been plunged into another lockdown the pandemic that we thought had started to subside came back in the sort of november december time of 2020 with a vengeance and certainly here in the uk we found ourselves deep in lockdown motorsport was affected as well but there were already plans within formula one to go ahead with a season without spectators despite all of the problems that motorsport was having at the time in january 2021 aston martin lifted new year's day spirits by announcing on the 1st of January last year, that they would be returning to a Formula One grid the first time in over six decades. Amazing. The Aston Martin Formula One team made its race debut in Melbourne, Australia on the 21st of March 2021, again with no spectators. But it was a phenomenal moment in Aston Martin history, wasn't it, Gary? It was, and I think it was an, an amazing announcement. I say, we, first of January, beginning of January, we heard of Aston Martin returning to Formula One. Now, some people would say it's not its natural home. I mean, all right, six decades have gone past, and in those six decades, I mean, Aston Martin have had great success in endurance racing, so it had ploughed its own field in that area. So what on earth were Aston Martin going back to Formula One for? And I think when we look through the year and all the metrics uh, and marketing behind it, they will all say from, from a marketing point of view, from a, from a lifting the brand point of view, Formula One has been a great success for Aston Martin. It has certainly raised its profile. And they, I think I've read somewhere that uh, after every race the website the configurator just goes mad which is something that never really happened with endurance racing but that aside i think it's great to see them back after 60 years the last one i think was in a dbr4 was was it wayne i think it was tbr4 mm. and here we are so we just in january 
they've made the announcement, and the announcement were that it was going to be Sebastian Vettel and uh, Lance Stroll. I remember hearing that announcement, Gary, and being quite excited because they had Lance Stroll as that kind of British young guy that everyone would get behind, but also that guiding, almost he's almost a veteran now, isn't he? Let's be honest, Sebastian Vettel, previous world champion, and you got the feeling that that was going to be a really good partnership, and one, in fact, that actually represented the brand of Aston Martin quite well also, because it's British, it's up and coming, it's trying new things, but also it has the steady in hand of heritage and tradition guiding its way. To me, that was a brilliant pairing. I think you're right. Sebastian, I don't think anyone can say it's wrong that he had an uncomfortable time at Ferrari. Uh, he didn't understand, feel part of the family, he was struggling there. And he has been embraced uh, with open arms into Aston Martin. I think as we go through the uh, the, the months uh, ahead, I think we can see that the, the team um, had some great moments and had some struggling moments, and Sebastian was part of that. But he has brought a lot of his uh, expertise of what it's like to be a championship-winning team, and he's managed to bring that in as well. And don't forget Lance Stroll. Now, I think he gets a lot of stick, Wade, for being the son of Lawrence Stroll. And so it's, you know, daddy put his son in a car. But I don't think it's like that. I really don't think. I think he's held his own during the year. I, I say it's review. We only started in January and I'm doing the review already. But he's held his own. And you've got to be able to n- drive a Formula One car. He can't, just be, he can't just be propped in there and off you go. I think Lance Stroll is, is someone to watch for the future. And I think these uh, so- social media warriors saying, oh, it's daddy's, uh, daddy's boy, it's in there. I think they're doing him a great disservice. Well, it was not his first Formula One team, of course. Uh, and also, Absolutely. no one gets in a Formula One car now by just turning up with a fat check. Unfortunately, you have to work your way through the ranks and you... You have to prove yourself. Otherwise, there's you know there's there's more than one person in control of a Formula One team now. There's a huge community around each team. In fact, each car in each team. And so you really do have to prove your worth as a sportsman, as a driver, to be there. So you, I think- you was you'll be soon found out if you if you was just put in there because you bought a big fat check. And at the end of the year, I think you would soon be just be embarrassed. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, there was a knock-on effect, of course, from that Formula One announcement because by February we learned that Aston Martin Racing would be pulling out of factory support for endurance racing. They would be supporting their customer teams, but their factory teams, their works teams, if you like, were going to cease. Now, I can understand that. To be running multiple race programmes across multiple disciplines, well, it's hard enough for the really big manufacturers, let alone someone relatively small like Aston Martin. But actually, despite that, the support that they're giving to their customer teams is meaning that Aston Martin is still very much at the forefront of endurance racing. Yeah, okay, it's not a works team, but actually you've got some fantastic teams winning races out there this year. We, we have. I say it was initially sad news, um, and you know, again, the, uh, the the social media and, and the outlet saying this is disastrous. You know, there's no Aston Martin uh, racing anymore. But behind the scenes, Aston Martin racing were supporting the customer teams and big time. And it was announced in February that um, the the endurance racing series would be as vibrant as ever. For for example, in February they announced that there would be five Aston Martin 
Vantage GT3s will be fighting for the Asian Le Mans GT series. GT3 and GT4 teams were, were poised to contest more than 20 international events that year. And top drivers will be available on loan to support the privateers. So though it was initially greeted with, with sadness, and uh, I get that, I, I'm a great Le Mans enthusiast, as I think you are, Wayne. So you just felt that uh, we're going to be missing something there. But it actually turned out that, all right, Aston Martin Racing weren't there, but Aston Martins were still racing in the endurance series around the world, big time. By the time we got to August, there was a double podium at Spa, at the Spa 24 Hours, and also the first title for the Vantage in Japan by September as well. Nürburgring, uh, the Nordschleifer victory as well later on in the year. So, as you say, very much still at the forefront. And actually, in a way, it's... It's quite nice to see the factory supporting privateer teams. And actually, if you look back in Aston Martin's history, that's actually quite a common thing to have done. You know, those Aston Martins that you see in some of those old races at Dundrod in those black and white videos. We'll talk more about the stories of some of those cars as this podcast continues, I'm sure. We're actually customers' cars that they bought from Aston Martin and raced themselves. So there actually is a tradition of factory support for privateer teams within the Aston Martin brand. Absolutely. I think after Aston Martin won Le Mans in 59 and withdrew after winning the World Championship that year, they they withdrew it. Uh, David Brown said, nothing else less to prove effectively. And it was one or two years later, I think it was particularly the American dealers, they were saying, we need to go racing. And Aston Martin started to support the privateers again. So it's 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 what they do. Mm, absolutely. Well, by the time we got into March, that sad news aside, uh, we weren't to know in February that it was going to be such a successful year in endurance racing for those privateer teams, as we've mentioned. But it was. By March, though... AMR 21 was unveiled and what I remember from seeing that car for the first time this being of course the Formula One team unveiling their car to the world for the very first time was that it was that Aston Martin green and suddenly it all sort of clicked for me at that point I suddenly realized that what they've been doing in endurance racing with those factory teams is building this very recognizable racing brand now and I think that's really come to fruition with this Formula One car and uh, we saw it for the first time in March fantastic moment for the team wasn't it it was it was um, I think it was a a video presentation Uh, we had the uh, Lawrence Stroll and the drivers and the management of Formula One there uh, it was it was great to watch it. I think it was a, a marvellous moment. You know, Aston Martin are back in Formula 1 and they revealed this AMR 21, as you say, in Aston Martin Racing Green. And you think, wait, what any other colour could it be? You know, it's um, I think Aston Martin Racing with the endurance car seems to have gone for a lime green car. That seems to, that seems to work for them. But I can't really see of any other colour that would have worked for for Aston Martin. And it looked absolutely striking. It was a a magic moment. The trouble is, with that colour, and I think subsequently it's been found out, is that the Aston Martin Racing Green, on TV, under certain lighting conditions, looks black. And I must admit, sometimes when I've watched the Formula One, I'm looking at it, I said, "Is is that the Mercedes or the Aston? You know, it, 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 is, it is difficult from TV sometimes because it comes across quite dark. 
And I think Aston Martin for, certainly for the next year, maybe trying to address that to make the car stand out a bit more because I think there is there is some conflict between other cars on the track and they can't quite identify it. But the colour aside, fantastic looking uh, machine. Uh, and they also announced at the same time that they would be building a 200,000 square foot facility at Silverstone uh, to complement the existing F1 factory. Now, don't forget the existing F1 factory was uh, Racing Point. And I think if you read, if you speak to the people there, it was done out of porter cabins. I've got my own beef, I've got to say, with the 200,000 square foot facility at Silverstone. Go on. Gary, yeah, I've got a problem with it because uh, it's all very good, but they pinched my favourite pitch at Lich Lake Farm campsite that I always used to put my tent on for Silverstone Classic. They <laughs> 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 built the factory on it now. <laughs> you should just park yourself there and say, no, this is not going to happen. You can just move, you can build around me. And actually, if I do build around you, you'd have a great, great position. I know in my luck, that would be exactly where they've put the baking oven for the carbon <laughs> fibre or something. But uh, the point I make, though, is that it has taken a huge amount of development down there and quite a lot of land on the outside side of Silverstone and if you can picture Silverstone those of you that have been as you drive in towards the circuit you take a left at the roundabout at the end of the dual carriageway into the main entrance if you take a right at that roundabout that is where Aston Martin now are with that new facility and it extends right across what used to be Lich Lake Farm campsite for the Formula One and Silverstone Classic events they've now moved to fields a little bit further on down but uh, it is a huge facility very modern, high-tech, and it is really what Aston Martin need to go into Formula One. That is why they've had to change the way that they look at motorsport in general across all disciplines because, you know, going into Formula One is no small undertaking. It is absolutely huge in terms of investment and the number of people you need to run a team. Do you think, therefore, Gary, that it is viable for Aston Martin as they go forward? Because in the grand scheme of things, they are still a relatively small company, aren't they? It is to raise the brand awareness. Europe, I think, is pretty pretty in tune with Aston Martin, as is America. But if you go to the Far East, China and, and other places, they're not so, it's not so well known. And I think uh, with... It just helps raise the profile from from a brand point of view, from marketing point of view, to raise its image across the world. I think it's fantastic. I think it would it would do its job. But this Formula One presence is just not there to to raise the Aston Martin profile. It is there to to be a lab, an innovation lab, as they say, for future road car technologies, and these would include the the upcoming mid-engine sports cars uh, inspired by the Aston Martin Valkyrie. So I think in the future, we've got a, a major portfolio of cars. We, we've certainly got the Valkyrie, we've got the Valhalla, and we've got the Vanquish as well, uh, which will be you know substantial cars in the, in the Aston Martin portfolio. And they will intrinsically link these mid-engine cars with, with, uh, with Formula One, as Ferrari have done with their cars. And let's say, I think Ferrari have pretty well cracked it. So watch I reinvent the wheel. Let's do what they do. When you look back on Aston Martin's history, there have been some real exciting developments, some real moments in automotive history that Aston Martin have have really adapted to and evolved with that has created some fantastic cars. I mean, the whole 60s revolution around GTs and sports cars 
gave us the DB5, for example, I think we are on the cusp of another really exciting moment in automotive history. This is happening right now because in 2030, of course, new car manufacturers are not going to be allowed to sell internal combustion engine vehicles in the UK. That's going to force all of these manufacturers to do new things with motive power. And the challenge arguably is even bigger for companies like Aston Martin, whose brand is tied very closely to performance and the the sort of oral experience of driving an Aston Martin, the sound of the engine and how that is linked with motorsport. I think you're right, but you're also wrong. Um, <laughs> I think uh, Aston Martin, yes, it is about it part. It's partly about the engine. It is partly about the performance, but I think what they have, Aston Martin, have done over the years is they have positioned themselves as being very handsome, very beautiful cars. And that seemed to come from the DB7 onwards. I think that was when the, the first beautiful Aston Martin, if you like, and it's been maintained ever since. And if you, you, you ever speak to Marek Greitman, you know, he's always talking about the beauty of the cars. Going back to the DB456, very handsome cars. Very powerful cars, very great grand touring cars, but was it the engine that made it? I'm not so sure. So why I'm saying here, I think Aston Martin are in a better position to, shall we say, Ferrari or Lamborghini, because they make great play of their engines, big time. It, it, it's the, 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 the horsepower, it's the V12, the V6s, the V8s. And so much so, you know, they have a, like, a, often you see like a, a glass canopy over the mid-engine one. So here's the engine. It's you know it's it seems to be their USP. Whereas Aston Martin never done that. So I think Aston Martin, as we move to the all-electric future, I think they're probably better positioned than should we say Ferrari, Lamborghini, or Bugatti, as because they are not so heavily focused on on the engine. I think they're in a better place. Very fair point indeed. And of course. You might be sitting there thinking, well, how does that help them with Formula One? Because you don't get to see the road cars. Well, Aston Martin thought of that as well. The DBX would take on the role of official medical car, as announced in March last year. And also, of course, they went into a deal whereby they would be using Aston Martins as the safety cars as well. So alongside the F1 team car that's racing on the grids, also you've got all of the infrastructure vehicles that are also Aston Martin. So everyone gets to see those cars there's multiple touch points throughout each race so aston martin addressing that uh, throughout the formula one program as announced in march of 2021 and this is our annual review of 2021 uh, looking back over the year in aston martin for an amazing year really in which of course we mentioned the endurance racing program was uh, scaled back but of course the focus going into customer programs and customer teams and one of those customer teams they call themselves an Aston Martin racing partner they're kind of a privateer that has factory support really Garage 59 they started to have their first successes of the year in April didn't they Gary? They did and uh, uh, I'm going to have to read this out because it's quite a mouthful <laughs> excuse me uh, yeah Garage 59 got their 2021 Fanatec GT World Challenge Europe Endurance Cup GTWC Pro Am Class title. Thank you very much. Uh, uh, and they got off to a perfect start with a victory at uh, Monza. 
And that was with uh, Alexander West and the works driver John Adam and Chris Goodwin. And it was the third win for the uh, Garage 59 trio. And the second time they won the season opener, uh, having done the same at Imola a year ago. So, you know, April, motorsports coming back big time. And there we are, Garage 59 did Aston Martin proud. And away from the racetrack in April, Aston Martin announced a new custom car as well. It was the DBR1 with a custom spec. Yes, it was the twin-turbo V12 Speedster. Now, Wayne, I know you like a, a convertible, but this had no roof, you know, so I'm not quite sure of it how it applies for the for the British climate. Twin-turbo V12 Speedster, no roof, and just 88 examples were to be made. It was to align the the heritage of the great uh, 1950s DBR1 and the 2013 uh, CC100 car they made, which was then to celebrate the 100 years of Aston Martin. I quite like the idea. I think the motoring journalist, the seasoned motoring journalist, got hold of it. And I think, well, I, I just can't see the point of this. Uh, a car with no roof. I think you had a, a token windscreen, but you certainly need to um, uh, drive it with your helmet on. And it seemed to be a thing that I think Mercedes and certainly Ferrari had done at the same time. But I, I would quite like the idea of, of driving a, a V12 Speedster, no roof, helmet on, put the heater on, blasting down the road I th- uh, that appeals to me what about you i think any journalist who knocks cars like that just doesn't get it they've also probably forgotten what it's like to be a child uh, and how fun <laughs> and i think it's really think that right. isn't it it's just having it's a toy it's having fun it's playing about let's not try and be practical let's just give our senses the biggest bit of adrenaline that we can throw at them in automotive oh. terms that's what that car's all about that's what sometimes cars should be about as you know i'm an owner serial owner of many old british sports cars and i've got yeah. to say it is very very rare i put the roof up on any of them uh, the only thing I would suggest to Aston Martin is if they're going to build cars without roofs at all, don't bother putting any carpets in them because they get very smelly and very damp <laughs> after a while. <laughs> but actually driving with no roof in this country is not really a problem. It's only those really horrific downpours that you occasionally have in summer that cause you a problem. Apart from that, when you're driving and it's a bit of rain in the air, it just goes straight over you. So It, it does it just drive faster. It appeals yeah. to me because it always does. And I think it if, does. if I had the money to have a car like that parked up in the garage when the sun was shining, I could think of nothing better than going out and having a good old bit of fun with it. Come on, journalists, lighten up. You'd have to put your sheepskin on for that, Gary. I can see you in one of them. You've looked on social media again, haven't you? <laughs> <laughs> and, and your Biggles glasses. I think it's a great look. Well, as we got into May, we heard for the very first time, actually, from the new CEO, Tobias. Uh, Tobias Mowers spoke for the very first time uh, and really there was a bit of speculation around whether he'd started his job or not, wasn't there, by the time we got to make it? Well, no one had heard from him. Well, that's right. He, he was, uh, I believe he was installed at Aston Martin in August 2020, uh, full of excitement from, from Mercedes-AMG. That was pretty much it. I, I get the impression that he's not so much a a PR guy, if you like. Um, he just rolled up his sleeves and got on with it and but as you say in may so from august to may we heard nothing and then audi pops and uh he did a a round table with a number of motoring journalists 
So it wasn't a one-to-one interview, so it was just him and, and, and the seasoned journalists who were around outlining his plans for the next few years. It seems like in between time, uh, during that time, he totally rearranged the production facilities and um, and improved the quality of the cars that popped out the other end. This was a great moment to uh, to see what was what. And as you say, Tobias spoke for the first time. There was a lot of speculation recently, wasn't there, whether Aston Martin would start using the Lagonda name again, but uh, we're still waiting to see. There was no real promises in either direction on that, was there? No, I feel very sad. Uh, it's, it's just my opinion. I always feel sad for Lagonda. It, it just, for me, it's a, it's a great brand name. Um, it last appeared in the William Towns Wedge, uh, the Aston Martin Lagonda. And after that, that that was the end of it. I think we saw a, well, I wouldn't say horrific. Uh, I think a, a questionable uh, four-wheel drive version out of Geneva Motor Show. I can't remember what year, 2015 or thereabouts. Um, you saw pictures of it. I think, my goodness, what, what's that about? And that was, that was to be a, a Lagonda. Having said that, I was fortunate enough to see it in the flesh uh, a few months afterwards and it looked far better it did look far better I think the photographs didn't do any justice so again under the Andy Palmer uh, management uh, Lagonda were coming back uh, as its own mark under its own brand uh, I do just to backtrack a bit I do remember Dr Betts they were saying too much energy etc would be put into Lagonda you have to raise the brand what is it we're just going to focus on Aston Martin Andy Palmer turned it around we're going to bring Lagonda back and we're going to have a luxury saloon. It was to be the Concorde of motoring, unlike uh, Rolls-Royce, which was, I don't know, like old hat. It was to be a, like a, a beautiful streamlined car. It was to be very high tech and we t- to have a, a, a Lagonda SUV as well. I think they were showing at the Geneva 2019. And I must say, they did look very striking and I was quite excited over that. But management change under the new New Broom, uh, Aston Martins have decided that Lagonda is not so much not going ahead, it's just been parked to one side. We don't know what's going to happen to it. It's been rumoured that it will become perhaps a luxury brand. We, we may see something like a DBX, Lagonda, more luxury. I don't know. That's just, what's, that's just what's been speculated. But I think Lagonda, I think as uh, Tobias says, we're concentrating on Aston Martin at the moment we're still evaluating what to do with Lagonda. You know, I can understand that. The difficulty with them is, and we saw this with Ford recently, they, at some point in their acquisition of brands throughout the decades, they ended up buying Vignali, which was an Italian styling house that did all sorts of specials, Alfa Romeos, um, even designed a Triumph once, the uh, Triumph 2000 Italia in the uh, late 1950s. Um, so it was a brand that Ford had acquired along the way, didn't really know what to do with it, and they recently rolled it out on their luxury models, the Ford Vignales. It's all very nice. The problem is that works fine for Ford because they're known for making very affordable, everyday utilitarian cars. When you're Aston Martin and you've got luxury and you've got performance – I can understand them being reluctant to dilute that Aston Martin brand by trying to make another end of it more luxurious or more higher performance than the rest of it. I can see the challenge they have in there. So it'll be interesting to see how that unfolds in the coming months and years. Well, yes, you're right. I mean, further on, I mean, Tobias did say that they, Aston Martin is the performance brand, so we don't need 
an mm. AMR version as well. There you go, yeah. You know, so they were looking to rethink about the AMR side of things. So Aston Martin is the performance brand. There's no Aston Martin V12 AMR or DB11 AMR. It's just Aston Martin. AMR and Lagonda are, what, uh, are just one side and we may see them resurrected in the yeah. future. Don't know. Well, he did say that 2025 would be the big key year for the revolution at Aston Martin, this being the introduction of the first two new pure electric sports cars to the Aston Martin lineup, and also more work with our friends over in Germany at AMG. Um, we haven't found anything more about those two ideas in the time since, as far as I'm aware, have we? No, there's been plenty of speculation. Uh, so we have two new pure electric sports cars. It's just speculation that perhaps the DB11 and the DBS may merge into one car. Don't know. Will there be room for an electric Vantage of some sort? Don't know. But so that's all they've just said. So the rest of it's just been speculation. But what we do know is that between now and then, there will be a major facelift and tech updates for the existing cars, which is the Vantage DB11 and the DBS, and to some extent the DBX, which has only just been announced. Certainly for the former cars, there will be uh, major in-depth modifications, and they say the interiors will be totally reworked. So we'll have to see what happens there. So that's happening between now and then. 2025, we'll start to see the new electric sports cars. Well, normally when a Formula One team gets going, it takes some time, probably a couple of seasons, before they start finishing in the uh, top levels of the sport. But in May, uh, Formula One saw Aston Martin finish fifth with Vettel at the wheel and eighth with Lance Stroll at the wheel at, well, the best Grand Prix to be finishing high at, <laughs> in my view. Uh, the most historic as well, of course, Monaco. And it was the first double points finish for the team as they got the season underway. And it was as we went into June that spectators begun to came, come back to motorsport and uh, got to see those cars in the flesh racing for the first time. But also in June, there was big news for the Aston Martin Heritage Trust itself, Gary. There was. So I've lost track of lockdown. So I think we had one in January to March. And then I think it was starting to ease. And and I think the, the curtains finally came up towards the end of June. And then a few days afterwards, there was the, the first Aston Martin Heritage Trust Festival. Uh, it was to celebrate the 100th birthday of A3, the Aston Martin A3, being the oldest surviving Aston Martin uh, in existence. And the festival was held at uh, Dallas Burston Polo Club and it achieved the biggest gathering of Aston Martins ever. We had support from Aston Martin. We had support from Aston Martin Racing with uh, the racing cars. Uh, we had support from dealers. And most important, we had some support from members and spectators. It was a great event. It was a, a, a lovely June day, a little bit of drizzle in the morning, but I think it was like a post-COVID, if you like, if I can use that word, release and out we went and it was a, a, a tremendous uh, a tremendous event so much so wayne scoop would we are doing another festival yes fantastic when 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 you've got your file of facts at hand i have right <laughs> flick through it and on the uh, how's august the 14th looking 
looks great to me. My file effects only goes up to 1979, but uh, cause that's when file <laughs> well, effects is ended. But. Yeah, I understand you tip X out the years, so you just keep using the pages, don't you? So, <laughs> so August the 14th, and it's going to be the second Aston Martin Heritage Festival. It's going to be held at Brooklyn's, and that is going to celebrate uh, 100 years of Aston Martin's first race at Brooklyn's itself. August the 14th, Brooklyn's, the second Aston Martin Heritage Trust Festival. It's going to be a belter. Well, you mentioned A3 was at last year's festival. It was a major part of 2021. And A3 can be seen whenever you like by going and visiting the Aston Martin Heritage Trust near Wallingford in Oxfordshire. And Gary goes regularly behind the scenes to find out more about what you can find at the Heritage Trust and we'll find another amazing thing from the archives next. Trust Talk. We take you behind the scenes at the Aston Martin Heritage Trust. I'm actually in the museum and I am surrounded by some lovely cars. We've got an, an Ulster, we have a Rapide, we have the Nimrod and we have a DBS. And I'm with Rob Smith, the chairman of the board of trustees. Now, I'm surrounded with some beautiful cars, but he doesn't want to talk about cars. He wants to talk about a driver's seat. So he has got to try and get me infused about this driver's seat. So, Rob, what's so exciting about this driver's seat? Well, it's one of the many interesting items we have that tell the Aston Martin story. So this particular seat is the prototype of the Hackett edition Rapide. So the design by Q division of Aston Martin are the people who do all the bespoke models. And Hackett, uh, the clothing company, are a long-term partner of Aston Martin. So back in 2018, it was agreed that they were going to create uh, a Hackett edition Aston Martin repeat. And all the trim in the car is the grey check material that Hackett use in their suits. So the whole car was trimmed like this. The centre of the seats, the door panels, even the handbook was covered in this Hackett material. So the seat we have on show is the prototype seat they made to show that the material could be used on a car seat and that it would all work and that it looked nice when it was, when it was all finished. Myself being a, a dashing young man, I could have a, a suit of that material and have my car interior the same. You could. The, the, the Q division will, will build you anything you like if you've got deep enough pockets. So you can specify everything from having uh, the colour of the car matched to whatever paint sample you might have, to any material inside the car, stitch patterns, fluting patterns, you name it, designed by Q can create it. This uh, Hackett edition, was it uh, a limited edition? Was, uh, did they, was it just a, a certain number of cars, do you recall? Um, it was just a one-off. Um, oh, really? Um, uh, finished in a, in a lovely powder blue colour. Uh, the car was built in 2018 and Aston Martin retained it to show off the skills of the Q division and then it was sold off to its first private owner last year who's extremely proud of having a one-off Aston Martin. It's these sort of things, Rob, that when you come to the museum, yes, there are cars here and there's some beautiful trophies, but 
it's these oddball things. I'm not saying the seat is an oddball. I am going to say it's an oddball. But you see that there's a reason, there's a story behind that. And the museum is, 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 is full of these things, isn't it? Almost every item we have has got some story to tell. Um, which car it was on, which part of the history did it come from, who built it or who used it. Yeah, everything's got an interesting story. And that all makes the history and heritage of Aston Martin quite so rich. If I can uh, divert, I believe we have the uh, desk over here. Yes, this is David Brown's desk. That was in Sunnyside at Newport Pangle, uh, along with the chair that, that's with it um, and the telephone set that's on the desk. And um, also on display on the desk is David Brown's own personal uh, engineering drawing kit. And that's loaned to us by his grandson, Adam. So we have the desk, we have the chair, we have the telephone, we have his engineering kit from the great David Brown, who lent it, obviously, his initials DB to this most fantastic range of cars. Well, David Brown, of course, is one of the most important characters in Aston Martin's story. Um, and we want to be able to tell his story in the museum, as well as the cars he built, like the beautiful DB Mark III just behind you. It just goes to show that the museum is not just cars. There is so much other material. And, yes, I'm reasonably infused by the seat. Thanks very much for your time. Jolly good. Well done. <laughs> You're listening to the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. Discover more about the story of Aston Martin, the cars, the people, the history, with the Aston Martin Heritage Trust. You're always welcome to visit us at our museum in Oxfordshire, so find out more via amht.org.uk. Well, after that look behind the scenes at the Aston Martin Heritage Trust, we're back to reviewing the year that was 2021 on this episode three of the Aston Martin Heritage podcast. And don't forget as well, we like to hear from you on this podcast and we like to hear your stories. You can get in touch with us very, very easily online. Just drop us a note to Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. Dot com. On there is a little contact button that you can use to get in touch with us and share your stories. And actually, someone did share their story with us. We're going to be featuring him on a future podcast. So we've had one message through at least. That's great news. We need more. We want to hear from you. So if you've been involved with Aston Martin, if you're a multiple owner, if you're owning an Aston Martin, maybe for the first time, or perhaps you've got an interesting story about Aston Martin's history or heritage that you want to share, do join us. We'd love to hear from you at Aston Martin Heritage Podcast dot com. And on our annual review of 2021, we are just about towards the end of June. And the success really of the Formula One team continued as the Azerbaijan Grand Prix took place and Sebastian Vettel secured Aston Martin's first ever podium position with a second place. And a great start for Aston Martin. Of course, they did have access to a pretty well-established team uh, in the old Red Bull team that had brought that team together. But uh, just showing really that the investment that Aston Martin made, the people that they'd chosen, were starting to pay dividends halfway through the season in June. July brought us more news from Aston Martin's road cars and that was that the first production mid-engine car from the brand was to be announced, and it was to be called the very dramatic Valhalla. I like this car, Gary. Dramatic moment there, very well done. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a great name, isn't it? Uh, I think um, it's a magic moment. It's the first production uh, mid-engine car, and I think I think it's great news. Um, we saw 
we saw the the first concept back at uh, Geneva in 2019, along with the Vanquish uh, concept, which was also to be a mid-engine car. And I must admit, at, at the time, I was, I was looking at those cars and I thought, well, which one's which? It's, it's a bit difficult to, to identify them. But they have subtly reworked this car. I must say, it does look sensational. Mid-engine, not the usual Aston Martin uh, arena that they go into, but it does look like an Aston Martin. Uh, it looks great. All new petrol hybrid engine. It uh, has three motors, Wayne, three motors, can you believe? It has uh, two electric and a rear-mounted 4-litre twin turbo. It's a bespoke uh, V8 engine, uh, totaling 950 brake horsepower. Thank you. I mean, it's and just we'll eye-watering t- power, that, isn't it? It, it? I mean, it is. It's so much power, you can't even get your head around it. The only thing I've come anywhere near with that kind of power was a drag car, I think, once. It's just phenomenal and the technology required to get that power onto the road is phenomenal i mean you know it's what what is it two and a half seconds to 60 this thing something like do you know i think i think what is underestimated is the tires the tire manufacturer the tires have to be able to cope with this i think it's amazing i don't think tire manufacturers get the enough praise that they do i mean I think if there's one of the biggest improvements over the uh, over the decade or two has been the handling, the grip of tires, and now they have the the the, the, the wheels are having to cope with these immense of like nine hundred fifty in this case with, with a V8 engine, but it also has electric uh, electric power there as well. And as we get to the electric future, which as as we've all seen with perhaps with McLaren and others, you know these ferocious power outputs these things can make. The tyres have to cope with it, so I, I'm just, I'm just in awe with the, as you say, with the tech that goes behind it. And it's not just the power plant; it's the whole package. Everything has to just come together to make it work. It's going to be interesting. You've raised a really interesting point there. It's going to be amazing to see how tyre manufacturers deal with that challenge going forward. Because what we do know about electric cars is they have immense amounts of torque, like just. And it's, there, and it's there at an instant. Bang. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And to get tyres to handle that and to get all of that torque down onto the road is going to be one of the biggest engineering challenges of high-performance electric vehicles as we go 2030 and beyond. And uh, I'm really excited to see what companies like Aston Martin are going to be doing with these cars and, and those partnerships that clearly is, again, going back to Formula One here, but it's clearly that partnership building in engineering um, innovation with tyre manufacturers, with manufacturers adding those third-party components to your vehicle. That has got to be the secret to success in a way that we haven't seen in automotive history, probably since the heyday of motorsport originally in the 50s and 60s. It's, it's almost come full circle now in that motorsport and the engineering innovation it requires are becoming once again more important as the electric vehicle era dawns. Do you, do you agree I, with that? I, I agree with that. I, I think it's a very exciting type. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm sad to see the combustion engine go. That's, that's just one element of engineering. But I just find the whole aspect, you know, in, in 10, 15, 20 years' time, the revolution in, in cars, in transport, is going to be staggering, absolutely staggering. And it's going to be engineering talent that's going to make leaps and bounds. We're probably going to move forward in the next you know, 10, 20 years more 
in that time than we've done in the past 50 years or so. I, I really do feel that. And I, d- I actually don't think the in- the internal combustion engine will go. I think it will be another part of the solution. I think, on the one hand, we have our heritage vehicles, and it's very important that we fight very hard to keep those on the road and usable, and the Aston Martin Heritage Trust is at the forefront of doing that. No matter what the electric future holds for us, we must always be able to come back to our internal combustion engine, classic cars, vintage cars, heritage Aston Martins, and continue to use them on the roads and allow people to enjoy them. But also, I think there are other technologies out there that we haven't quite discovered or managed how we're going to use yet that may well use a sort of net zero combustion i'm i'm convinced of that i think electric is only part of the solution here i i think i think there is um yes uh it's been said that it's not the it's not the engine that's the problem it's the fuel uh so the internal and as you say if some sort of um method but perhaps an internal combustion engine can prove to be net zero at the end of it or very 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 minimal then i think there'd be a way forward porsche are doing a great job from what i understand on synthetic fuels e-fuels and i think they're going to be racing next year and i think certainly in the um in the uh, Le Mans series, not if it's next year or the year after, they're going to be championing this synthetic fuel, which I I believe just reduces uh, CO2 output. That reduces it by uh, 80%. You know, it is quite staggering. And I think you're right. I think we're just at the beginning that, hey, the internal combustion, burning petrol, burning diesel or whatever, that may be on the way out, but there may be some other form which... I like to think the boffins in, the, in their white suits and big thick glasses are are doing at the moment and say, hey guys, we found this. And I think that could be a way forward for, for new manufacturers. I also, I think I've read somewhere that Aston Martin after 2030 may continue to sell some internal combustion cars for certain markets because, you know, this is a Europe-based, UK and Europe-based, this cutoff point. There might be a few years either side. But I think this country is like America. They don't have a cut-off point, do they? No, and often some countries just don't have the infrastructure at all to support road transport no. yet via um, electric means. But uh, the main thing is we get to enjoy our heritage and keep absolutely existing internal combustion engines running, whatever the future of new vehicles may hold. Well, we went through, um, you know, for the, for the heritage vehicles. I mean, when we lost Five Star, there was an uproar, but we survived it. When we lost Leaded Petrol, you know, there was uproar, and we survived it. You know, then we went to E5, Chaos, we survived it. Now we're on to E10 Fuel current chaos but we'll survive it you know i'm sure you know the heritage vehicles will just continue on if, if there's enough passion uh, around to to make it so absolutely and passion was in abundance at the british grand prix in july 2021 a fantastic event and a fantastic race for aston martin in fact nobody gained more positions during that race than aston martin driver lance stroll for the british grand prix who went on to secure four points for the team in the championship standings in july of 2021 Uh, sebastian vettel not coming off with too much luck in that particular race he had a spin 
and a retirement uh, that uh, prevented points for Vettel. But uh, just proof then that the car and the team has potential in Formula One and that continues to grow and uh, become more successful. And then we arrive in August and we have the Pebble Beach Concorde d'Elegance in full swing. <laughs> and Aston Martin chose this event for a, a very special Valkyrie unveiling, didn't they? They did. It's called the Valkyrie Spider with a removable roof panel. Aston Martin seems to have got a thing about taking roofs off cars at the moment. But um, uh, yeah, the Valkyrie Spider, and there's only 85 uh, examples to be made, and they've all been sold, I believe. I tell you something, wait, I don't know. I've, I've looked at that car. My goodness, it's gorgeous. I don't know, just by removing the roof panel, uh, they've had to change the doors. Uh, I think it's now scissor shaped, so then they now lift up. It looks amazing. And I would love one. I'd love a lot of Aston Martins, but this car just looks absolutely amazing. And I think they'll have no. Um, uh, they'll have a lot of fun in uh, getting rid of those if they haven't been sold already. But it just looks a great car. So we've now got the Valkyrie. We've now got the Valkyrie, I think it's AMR Pro. And now we've got the Valkyrie Spider. So um, why not? Absolutely. It's a great looking car. And I think it'd just be fantastic when it's actually, uh, I don't have a journalist. So I, I, I can imagine that uh, some journalists won't be able to get a hold of, of a Valkyrie at some point. I think it'd just be a, an amazing uh, road test to see how the technology that the F1 car for the road will pan out. Well, buy one now if you can afford one, because they'll never be cheaper. With just 85 examples to be sold, they are a future collectible classic, and I imagine they're going to be worth many millions in many years to come. So uh, exciting to see that car unveiled as it was in August at Pebble Beach. Back in motorsport, it was uh, the Vantage GT3 achieving great things at the Spa 24 Hours, as I alluded to earlier with Garage 59 finishing third overall. Uh, taken to the podium was Ross Gunn, Marco Sorensen and Nicky Tim. And the 24 Hours of Le Mans, which was also held in August in 2021 due to the delays put upon it by the pandemic. The Vantage now running in the GTE AM class uh, by TF Sport. And TF Sport have been running Aston Martins for a long time now. They finished second in the car number 33, just one lap adrift of the lead car. But outside of motorsport, we got exciting news. We had been waiting for it for some time. The launch of it had been delayed because of the pandemic. Cinemas had been closed in 2020. But finally, we got a release date for Time to Die, the brand new 007 film. Gary, have you seen it? Yes, I have seen it. I have seen it. Have you, have you seen it? I have, yes, uh, and I love it. I got the feeling they wanted to make this Aston Martin's big moment. And it was, of course, the first time that a film had featured four Aston Martins side by side. The DB5 appeared, didn't it? The classic Aston Martin V8, uh, the current DBS, and we even saw a Valhalla in there as well. Uh, it was a concept car. We saw a whole spread of Aston Martins. They literally threw everything at it. Do you know what I felt, Wayne, at the end of it? This was uh, Daniel's last film. Is this Aston Martin's last Bond film? Do you think they just threw everything at it? The new generation, the, the new era, new Bond, may it mean a new car? I don't know. Maybe just James felt... Bond is about to become a vegan on a pedal bike. I have no idea, but uh, I got the... 
<laughs> I get a feeling that uh, there's there might be something in what we're saying. Perhaps perhaps it won't be their last, but perhaps they just like I do. I fear for where it might end up if the wrong people get their hands on the James Bond brand. Um, but uh, luckily, that wasn't the only Aston Martin to be involved with the film because actually we also had a fantastic little stunt actually that Aston Martin pulled when they unveiled a life-size Corgi DB5 model from the 1965 movie Goldfinger, really to publicise their continuation cars, of course, because you can now buy a DB5 continuation. But what a brilliant thing to have unveiled that life-size model of that very famous Corgi car alongside the film. And we talked about that way back on episode one of the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast, which you can listen to at astonmartinheritagepodcast.com. Into September, and it was motorsport victory again as Aston Martin clinched their first major GT championship title in Japan at the Suzuka Circuit, where, of course, Destation Racing. I oh, well, say. I, I've, I'm, I'm glad you picked this one up because I didn't know how to say that. Destation, yeah. <laughs> Uh, there's someone French listening to me banging their head against the table at the moment I, but, think, I uh, think we had uh, complaints from French listeners from your last <laughs> attempt uh, yeah. in, in episode 2 <laughs> that's yeah. the one yes. <laughs> Destation Racing won the 2021 Super Taikyu series in Japan so that was another great victory for those customer privateer teams with factory support for Aston Martin and then it was an important anniversary in the end of October for Newport Pagnell, of course, the old Aston Martin works, Gary. It was indeed. Uh, it was towards the end of October and Aston Martin works are, are, are still at Newport Pagnell, uh, pretty much a, the, the showroom now, but quite a some of the existing buildings are still there. And they marked uh, an important anniversary uh, towards the end of the month, uh, being one of the last supercars created at that historic site being the original v12 vanquish and can you believe it was 20 years ago uh absolutely amazing uh paul spires the the president of aston martin works itself said the original v12 vanquish uh, represented an important and timely development of our mark it was and is a great super gt with all the character style and power that is uh, rightly expected of an Aston Martin sports car. And I do remember when that car came out, uh, Wayne. My goodness, what a leap. I mean, up to that time, we had uh, the Virage, which was effectively uh, a reskinned, and perhaps I've been unkind, a reskinned uh, uh, V8 saloon from previous ones. Uh, we had the DB7, which was effectively a. Well, how can I put this? Well, let's put it. Uh, a a reskinned uh, proposed F-type uh, replacement. Beautiful as it was. And suddenly, and it was seen, well, in my mind, it was out of the blue, there was this absolute stunning new era, new method of construction, uh, aluminium-bodied Vanquish, and a great name as well. It was amazing. Do you remember it being launched? I do remember it being launched. I remember being really excited about it. Uh, but I'm going to make you really jealous now uh, because not only do I remember it being launched, but I got to take one to Le Mans. And I oh, went, come on. I went to Le Mans <laughs> with a V12 Vanquish, uh, and it was it was amazing. I remember it turning up at my house at 4 a.m. Uh, 
because we had a ferry to catch from Portsmouth. Well, that's rude, isn't it? Well, and, uh, and I think there, there was definitely a lot of curtain twitching going on on my road when that pulled up on my drive, and it was uh, it was brought to my house because uh, yeah, everyone. I think everyone thought I'd turned into a drug dealer or something. But uh, <laughs> yes, had a fantastic weekend Le Mans break in a V12 Vanquish, and the first thing I noticed about that car was that I was living in Derbyshire at the time was the sheer speed at which I arrived at Portsmouth at the docks and <laughs> rolled onto the ferry to go to Le Mans. I think a journey of normally four and a half hours, I think, took three hours. Um, somehow, I know, no idea why. It uh, must have been clear well, roads that day. Clear, clear roads. Yes. Oh, well, f- four or five in the morning, it would be. Indeed. But uh, I rem- it, it's, it's the biggest feeling car that... It's a strange driving experience, I thought, because... It feels like a very obviously big car, but it also feels very lightweight. You know, you even have some small cars that feel big and heavy for their size, whereas the Vanquish V12 feels like it should be big, but it doesn't feel heavy, if you know what I mean. That was... Meaty, probably. A meaty. Yeah, that's a good description, actually. I won't feel sorry for you, you know, <laughs> say, go, going down to Le Mans in a, a launch V12 Vanquish. I'm, I hope you can feel the... The hatred and, and bile <laughs> that's coming through uh, by speaker. <laughs> well, it was a beautiful car. It was the car that really... Um, I've always loved Aston Martins. We've discussed on back on episode one what got us at our interest in Aston Martins. But for me, that was the moment in my life where it became real, where I actually lived with one for a short amount of time, experienced it firsthand, you know, got it out on the road and, and lived with it for a weekend. And I think that's really what cemented the, the enjoyment of the brand for me. Um, when I when I look back on it now, and that was the same car, actually, I put on... We literally, we, we unpacked the tent from that car and within weeks I'd booked it in to go to Top Gear Live because that's what I was working on at the time. And uh, we sh- showed the car at BBC Top Gear Live. And it was amazing to see the crowds that not only gathered round it on the campsite, but also at BBC Top Gear Live. And it wasn't a new car at that point. I'm talking, what year was it? 2011, I think this would be. So it was quite an old car by then. It had been around a long time. But um, still, it really it really got people excited, even though it had been around sort of 10 years nearly by then. So, yeah, fantastic car. Beautiful thing from Aston Martin. And, of course, a beautiful thing from an amazing designer, Ian Callum. I interviewed him uh, as, a, as a, I say journalist. I think, I think that's over-egging it a bit. Uh, I was a, a budding writer for the Aston Martin Owners Club magazine. They did a magazine called AM Review. And... This was many years ago, I think, not, not long after launch of the Vanquish. And I, I dropped a line to Ian Cameron and said, could, could I interview you, please? He said, yeah, sure, come up. So I went to the TWR uh, place. And I've since seen him, but he denies saying this. He said he did he designed the Vanquish when he was in a bad mood. Um, because at, I think uh, at the time... He was uh, wasn't necessarily. I wouldn't say in a good place, but I think he was just a bit angst. So hence why the Vanquish looks quite. I wouldn't say aggressive. It just looks a bit uh, muscular and meaty. Um, whereas the DB7, another great car from him beforehand, is very, 
very elegant and beautiful. This one had a bit more attitude. And he did say to me, I've got it written down somewhere, that he said he was in a bad mood at the time. So I think, great, you know, just get out the wrong side of bed sometimes and here comes a great car. <laughs> well, of course, he has gone on to redo the V12 Vanquish, he hasn't has. he? In his own, and styled it how he would have liked if cost was no object. And that's quite an interesting car as well. Yeah, I think, I think it'd, be, it'd be lovely to uh, perhaps get Ian Callum on this podcast at some point to talk about how he what he thought the original Vanquish and his current reworking so Ian if you listen I, I know he's a keen listener uh, he will uh, hopefully come on let's get you on let's talk about it well we do share our other passion which is of course uh, Jaguars and also he is a fellow owner of a Triumph TR6 is Ian Callum is he, he yes is. he is he is Indeed. so uh, there we are he should be listening we're his people <laughs> <laughs> Well, as we go through into November here on the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast, uh, we announced news on this very podcast, episode two, in fact, that the first customers would be soon receiving their Aston Martin Valkyrie hypercars that they'd put orders in for probably years ago. It feels like that car's been around forever, but actually the full production had just started in November and that the first customer car is going to be delivered within the coming weeks. What a brilliant Christmas present for those people that would have been. That's been, of course, built at Gaydon, the UK headquarters of Aston Martin now, uh, with a dedicated uh, team behind that car. And you said at the time, Gary, amazing that uh, with each of the 150 cars they're building, hand-building, they take yes. over 2,000 man-hours to create, which is just an astonishing level of detail for this day and age of uh, automotive production. And also, we were very envious of the guy who gets to take it round Silverstone before delivering each car, because every single customer car is tested on high-speed testing at the home of British Motor Racing Silverstone by the luckiest man in the world, whoever he is. I don't know who he is, but he's got the best no. job in the world. He um, has, he has. That's, that's going to be amazing. I think it comes back to what we said earlier. This Valkyrie, the engineering, the design, the the talent that's got into that, I, I think it just champions great engineering for this country, and the uh, and the original suppliers. I think I think it's a great notice board. Great confidence building, actually, because if the factory themselves are quite prepared to throw it round a racetrack before they come and deliver it to you, that shows their confidence in that engine being able to take all of that. I've bought some cars over the years where I doubt the dealers are quite happy to drive off the forecourt yeah, around the <laughs> exactly, racetrack. Yeah. Not Aston Martin, we'll say, but anyway, that's another story. That's right, absolutely. Well, there was also other news for the hybrid version of the DBX as well that's going off to China, wasn't there, Gary? Uh, there was. Uh, it's, it wasn't big news, but it, it did appear that um, now China uh, is, is a big market for uh, Aston Martin, but... They have the the, uh, the the duty over there whenever whenever a car goes in there. They currently pay a whopping twenty five percent tax. I mean that day is serious money, uh, uh, and it's based upon uh, engine size and all the rest of it. So Aston Martin have announced a, a six cylinder mild hybrid version of the DBX uh, to be exclusively sold in China. It's it's a straight six, uh, be supplied by uh, Mercedes AMG. Uh, it's expected to be uh, three litre, uh, with a, with a uh, mild uh, forty eight volt uh, hybrid assistance, and this will bring the taxation down from twenty five percent to something a bit more um, palatable at twelve uh, percent. No plans to uh, 
bring it anywhere else uh, just for China. I think there's no secret, uh, Wayne, that the DBX uh, will be, um, the family will expand over the years. I think there will be a, a higher performance version, I think. And there will be a, a hybrid version as well, probably from uh, other markets. But we'll wait and see on that. Staying with the DBX, if I may, financial news. In the last final quarter of 2021, it was reported that the DBX accounted for more than 50% of its core sales this year. I mean, that's quite phenomenal. What it does tell me, Wayne, is, my goodness, what what position would Aston Martin be in if it wasn't for the DBX? Yeah, you're quite right. And it's kind of almost depressing in a way as well, because... You know, in order to survive, it just goes to show that you need an SUV in the range, doesn't it? It shows what the motoring public are wanting to buy, of course. But uh... and I can, I, I get the appeal. So here is an, I suppose the the, the DB11, the V8 Vantage are everyday cars, but the DBX or an SUV is a more everyday car. A little bit more Aston Martin in every day. There you go. I think they should use that as their their tagline, their brand. I think. I think. Uh, what would they do without that? us? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so anyway, I say that was China for the last year. Uh, took sixteen percent of Aston sales this year, compared to six percent in twenty twenty. If you need to make SUVs, Aston Martin. If you need to go make tractors again. If you need to make lorries, we don't care as long as that money funds vehicles like the Valkyrie, the Valhalla, and all of those amazing things that we stick posters on our bedroom walls of and drool over. I really don't mind what they sell to make money for the company to make sure that we have those amazing cars and an amazing Formula One team to support. Um, SUVs might not be my thing, but if it makes them able to build cars that we all love, then that's just great. Well, it's exactly that. It's like Porsche. Uh, they say you know without the suv they we won't have they wouldn't have the cayman and the 911 so you know it's uh it's how it is well we haven't had an aston martin heritage podcast since uh, the beginning of december now so we have some new news for you as we round off our overview of 2021 with the final month of that year december and there is big news gary and i won't uh, we on the proverbial i'll instead let you take the full glory of sharing with us what that big news is uh, thank you, thank you. Uh, that, that is delightful. I'm, I'm delighted to be here to do this. Um, now, December, it's usually a quiet month. Nothing much goes on. Uh, might be a new body stripe on a car or whatever, but that's all you get. But no, big news. Aston Martin confirmed the arrival of a new V12-powered Vantage, which should be here this year. Now, what's also delightful, Gaiden is calling this a final edition and not a limited edition. Uh, now, there's been a sound clip on the website. There's been some darkened images uh, showing the rear end of the car, and it has a spoiler on the back. And that is pretty much it, Wayne. I mean, that's that's all we know. And I find it very bizarre. So I think it was about mid-early December. Hey, guys, officially, there's going to be a V12 power advantage. Now it's gone quiet, and we're in early January. So having said that, I understand... Uh, that Aston Martin have been showing the car through video links and zooms or whatever to to the great and good, the people that are interested in the car, they they have seen it, but there has been no, certainly no uh, further launch details on it. But Wayne, come on, 
a big engine in a small car, what's not to like? Absolutely. Absolutely right. That's great news as well. As you say, unusual to have such big news for a brand so late on in the year, which just shows you what could be coming in 2022 from Aston Martin. Certainly the uh, end of the Formula One season for 2021 showed a really good result, really, for a team in their first season. Vettel finishing 12th on the scoreboard with Lance Stroll 13th out of those 21 starters. And for a brand new team, you know, 77 points, uh, seventh out of ten teams. Um, you know, it's not it's not anywhere near the six hundred and fourteen odd points of Mercedes. Sure, no, but this is their first season. You know, it takes time for a team to bed in. First season, yes. First season, no. Uh, they came from Racing Point previously, but I think where where Aston Martin uh, struggled this year. So seventh, you know. Uh, out of 10, not too shabby at all. I think uh, Vettel and Stroll uh, held their own. I think where they were hammered this year, Wayne, was uh, like Mercedes were at the beginning, were, were something to do with the floor, the rake of the floor, the regulations went against them. So the other teams had the advantage and Aston Martin and Mercedes, I understand, had a problem with the, the angle of the floor, the high rake, low rake or something like that. So I don't think we are seeing the best of the team. I think it was a a right. Well, let's let's do what we can with what we can because, as you and I know, and as others knows, I'm sure, 2022 big rule changes, big changes for the cars, and I think that will be an amazing period to see Aston Martin really shine. And I think, and I think we'll see. I think we'll see the old Vettel back again. Yeah, I really do. Yeah. I hope so. Well, let's face it; they've had a year now to bed the team in, uh, get their strategy in place. They've built that big facility we mentioned earlier at Silverstone. They've got things coming together now. They've learnt a lot from their first season. Now, as you say, they just need to focus on that brand new car for the 2022 season. And oh, I the can't rule wait. changes, and it's going to be a fantastic year ahead. And you can share in that fantastic Aston Martin year of 2022 with us here on the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. We'd love to have you along. We'd love to hear your stories, of course, as well. Don't forget to get in touch with us at astonmartinheritagepodcast.com. Those of you waiting to listen to that HWM Gearboxes interview will get that in episode four. Uh, that's coming very soon. And we're always pleased to have you along to listen to this podcast as we chart and record the history of the great Aston Martin brand. It's going to be an interesting year ahead, Gary. What do you think we'll be talking about as the big story this time in 2023 as we look back on 2022? What do you reckon? Oh, What's well, your prediction? We, okay, I think we'll, 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 we might actually finally see the V12 Vantage. I think I'm pretty sure on that. I think we will see uh, further uh, derivatives of the uh, DBX. I mean, these are just rumours. I don't know. I just feel um, that there will be further additions of that. Um, I think we might start seeing uh, the initial revamps of for the existing range. Uh, I mean, Tobias and his team, they're not hanging around. They've, they've got a job to do. Hopefully, I think we'll see some great uh, improvement in the financial performance of Aston Martin uh, next year. Sales going. Hopefully, we'll have a, like a, a relatively COVID-free, if I can use that phrase, year ahead. We just you know release everybody. So I think we'll look back and looking at uh, 
some some great new cars, some great new launches. I'm thinking we will see Aston Martin really showing its uh, its its pace in Formula One. I think it's going to be such a an exciting period. I think it's going to be great, and we'll see, we'll see the best of Vettel, and I think Stroll will really show his his place there. I they're talking about it's going to take about five years to you know to be championship contenders. So I'm going to put my one pound bet and say I'd like to see Aston Martin fourth or fifth in the uh, championship uh, thing next year. Endurance racing, I think there's going to be continual great uh, customer support there. I think that would be fantastic. Uh, that's my predictions. What about you? I think my predictions will be that we'll hear more about the electric future of Aston Martin. And I think you, Gary Taylor, are going to be a lot busier because I think the Aston Martin <laughs> Heritage Festival is going to become a must-do event on the calendar of Aston Martin fans worldwide every single year because it was such a success in 2021 and I think it will be an even bigger success in Brooklands in 2022 and I think that is just going to be part of the summer calendar. I think you're right. It was such a great success. I think after the first one, I think the chairman and others said, well, no, that'll be it uh, until the next one. Uh, hopefully, it won't be the, the difficult second album. It won't be. It just be the. It was. It was such a great success. Brooklyn's Aston Martin. It's just going to be an amazing event. I can just see this being an, uh, an annual celebration of of Aston Martin. All things. So whether you're an owner, enthusiast, or you you just love the Aston Martins, do come along. It will be on the website in due course. Uh, you'll hear it first on this podcast, August the fourteenth. I'm going to be busy that day, and I think we may have an exclusive podcast for you at that time. Fantastic. If you can't wait until then, don't forget to visit the Aston Martin Heritage Trust over there in Wallingford, uh, near in Oxfordshire, and uh, you can find out more information about the trust at amht.org.uk. But until episode four of the Aston Martin Heritage Podcast, it's goodbye from me, Wayne Scott. And it's goodbye from me, Gary Taylor. The Aston Martin Heritage Podcast. Subscribe and get new episodes delivered to your device automatically via AstonMartinHeritagePodcast.com.